Hi, good evening, everyone. I'm Tim Eby. I'm the general manager at St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And thank you very much for uh, coming out on this brisk November evening to uh, have an important conversation about the budget situation in Illinois. Uh, I want to just a, a couple of quick comments and questions. First of all, uh, I'm, I'm sure all of you are aware of uh, St. Louis Public Radio. How many out, you, out there are members of the station? So those of you who don't have your hands up feel very guilty. <laughs> but thank you very much, all of you, uh, for your support in coming out tonight. It's, it's really appreciated. Uh, we are uh, really thrilled to be partnering with uh, our, our friends up in Springfield at NPR Illinois and AARP uh, for tonight's event. And uh, very, very excited about the conversation uh, we're having and the conversation that you'll be a part of tonight as well. So again, thank you for coming up. Thanks for your support of Public Radio, of St. Louis Public Radio. and. Uh, I look forward to the conversation this evening, and I want to turn it over to Randy Eccles, who's the general manager up at uh, NPR Illinois up in Springfield, to uh, give you a little bit more information about tonight. Randy. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Uh, we really appreciate it. We appreciate the partnership with AARP and St. Louis Public Radio, and it's nice to get out here to the SIUE campus where uh, I haven't been before. So uh, thanks again. It, just so you know, NPR Illinois is in the state capitol in Springfield, and so we cover the state house for all the public radio stations in Illinois and also for St. Louis Public Radio. And so we about oh, almost a year ago realized this budget crisis in Illinois had gotten really bad and we didn't have a budget at that point and we thought there's something we need to do with that and as we talked with our friends at AARP they also thought it was very important to go out and start hearing how this was impacting people so we put together a tour all across the state of Illinois we've been in the Quad Cities in Chicago, Urbana, Peoria and this is our 11th stop here in Metro East, Edwardsville, and we think it's really important that uh, this part of the St. Louis Metro is heard because you are under Illinois capital uh, decisions, and so we'd like to hear from you tonight. Um, some cards were handed out earlier. Um, if you have a question at any point, um, Nijay and Tracy are around. You can fill out a card, they'll bring them up, and we can give them to Sean to ask the panel. We'll actually ask you to come up to the microphone to ask your question, because we are recording this, and we, and we want to get your question from your voice uh, on the tape. So we would appreciate that. Um, Illinois' fiscal health, we thought when a budget was passed, it would be over. Uh, if anybody's under that impression, that's not the case. <laughs> we still have, I think, almost $15 billion in backlog bills that we have to take care of. So we'll talk about how um, things are not settled yet and how it's impacted a lot of organizations. We have a great panel tonight who are going to help us out with context. And uh, at the end, uh, I, I just want to thank you again for coming. And I'd like to introduce Ryan Grunfelder from AARP. And uh, thanks again. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you all uh, tonight for, for coming out. Really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to a great discussion with this panel. So I'm going to throw a couple numbers out here for you. And I'll, I'm going to start by correcting Randy, actually. Um, yeah, the, the state bill backlog was about 15 over. It was actually it was nearing $17 billion about a week and a half ago. And because of a bill that passed in the General Assembly that the uh, governor signed, to allow bond borrowing to happen, that debt was cut down this week uh, by 42%. So now it's floating at around $10 billion, which that number, just, just think about that. They cut it by 42% and there's still $10 billion in unpaid bills in the state of Illinois. I heard from some agencies this week 
who still did not get paid, and they haven't been paid since October of 2016. And these are area agencies on aging that are serving seniors <coughs> of the state of Illinois. So that's how bad this fiscal crisis remains. And we also need to think about the current budget that they passed. Yes, they did pass a budget, a fiscal year 18 budget, but they're estimating that it's anywhere between one and two billion dollars in the hole, as well as the pension deficit that's hit the state of Illinois. And Moody's estimated in July that that number is at 251 billion dollars. So we are looking at some enormous, almost unimaginable numbers, and that's why we're doing this with NPR Illinois and with St. Louis Public Radio, because we know all of you are concerned about this. We know everybody out there is concerned about it. AERP has launched a campaign called Enough is Enough. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be launching a website to share consistent stories and concerns that you all have about how this budget is negatively affecting you. It already has for many of you because your income taxes went up in July. How much more revenue raising are they going to do to, to uh, fix this? But if we don't fix it sooner rather than later, those numbers are going to be, become so sky high that we won't even be able to have a state anymore. So that's why we're here tonight. Thank you all for coming. And I'm going to turn it over to Sean to get started. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Thanks to everybody for coming out tonight. And uh, just really briefly, again, I'm Sean Crawford. I'm the news director of NPR Illinois based at the state capitol in Springfield. I've covered state government for many years and um, also oversee a lot of reporters now who cover state government. We also do a talk show, which uh, even if it doesn't air in your local market, you can uh, listen to, which is online every week. We have a lot of reporters who cover state government, discuss the issues in government and politics. It's called State Week, and uh, you can always you can podcast that show as well. Uh, just wanted to, uh, we're going to introduce our panel here, but again, I wanted to reiterate that uh, Randy had mentioned that we have these cards available and we'd like to hear from you tonight. This is sort of a two-way conversation, so if you have something you'd like to know about, maybe you're not sure about it when it comes to state government, or maybe you have a comment or a question, uh, we'd like to call you up uh, as we go along tonight to come up to one of the microphones on either side and ask that question. So we'll get started here with our panel this evening. We have three great individuals who've joined us tonight. The first closest to me is John Becker. John has been a not-for-profit administrator for over 30 years, working with special needs populations, and for the past 11 years as executive director of Senior Services Plus, which is in Alton. He's been the team leader that initiated agency turnarounds in three different fields over a 19-year period as executive director of the Alton YWCA and at Senior Services Plus. He can talk more about that and some of the things he sees going on with state government. And we welcome John Becker. Uh, thanks for inviting me tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, a lot of folks uh, don't know about Senior Services Plus. We are a uh, private 501c3, and we're the largest provider of uh, services for seniors in southern Illinois. Uh, we serve over 30,000 people a year, and we're actually in the homes of 1,200 seniors on a daily basis. Uh, most folks know about our agency in terms of Meals on Wheels, and that's unfortunately the uh, program that's really been hit hardest over the last three years. Um, I always talk or think about our agency in terms of business, because even though we're a non-for-profit, we are a very large business. And for folks who may or may not be familiar with uh, the Alton area where we're headquartered, uh, Alton at one time was a huge manufacturing power. 
Well, those days are long gone, and now an uh, agency like Senior Services is one of the top 30 employers uh, in the area in Madison County. We have a payroll over five and a half million dollars every year. Um, it's interesting what is happening with the state budget. Uh, while uh, we partner a lot with AARP because the growth in people aging uh, is of historic proportions now in this country. So uh, there's a lot of numbers that are thrown out, but on a local basis, nationwide, there's 10,000 people a day turning 65. Uh, in Madison County, there's 54,000 people over the age of 60. Every year for the next 20 years, there's 1,700 people turning 60. Uh, of those 1,700 folks, probably a uh, very conservative estimate of 15, 10% are going to be folks living at the poverty level. And those are uh, a lot of the people where our mission-driven services really make a huge impact. So it's kind of a juxtaposition to be in at the time when uh, the uh, state budget has caused so many uh, crises for agencies like ours who are also a large employer but also we're facing the uh, biggest growth and the largest segment of the population that will be around for the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, services are not even close today what they need to be to uh, support people, let alone grow with what the potential will be in the next 20 years. We'll hear more from John as the evening goes along. Up next we have Deborah Moore. Deborah currently serves as Director of Administration for St. Clair County, where she implements county board policies and develops the county budget under the leadership of the board chairman. She previously served as Executive Director of St. Clair County's Intergovernmental Grants Department, and in that role she oversaw administration of multiple federal and state grant programs awarded to St. Clair County as well as the City of East St. Louis. Deborah. Thanks for the invitation and good evening to all of you. Uh, government is often viewed as the entity that can solve many problems when in fact it is the creator of many problems. Um, I would have to put the, our Illinois experience in a, in a little bit of perspective on the impact that it has on St. Clair County's ability to deliver what our citizens expect and it happens in other counties as well. Uh, we are faced with multiple what we call and what are unfunded mandates. These are demands that come from the state in an attempt to sort of balance uh, their needs, but we say you can't balance the budget on the backs of things like social service programs and things like an ability to generate tax revenue because that's how government operates. So we have new exemptions that we've never had before that are tremendously impacting us. We have uh, requirements uh, on uh, new levies and new uh, taxes that we must respond to and an inability to to deliver the services that we once did at the level required. Uh, and I will be honest, we have the, the influence of the of sectors that are not appropriate for uh, government because we can't respond as um, a business can respond. But because the legislators, uh, many of them, I should not make a universal statement, but many of our legislators are uh, married to special interest. And what we see is often uh, playing out is a sincere preference on the part of the legislator rather than a broader understanding of the needs of, for the greater good. So it's a lot of interesting thing going, things going on. I'm sure we'll get into many of the specific points, but in a broad context, our biggest problems are unfunded mandates, 
uh, and an inability to generate the revenue that we need because of the burden that it will place on our citizens and an expectation from the state that we can deliver more and more in the absence of the revenues we need to support uh, the services that are delivered, that we are expected to deliver to our citizens. Thanks, and we continue on. We have at the far end of the table there, Art Ryan. Art is, the, uh, is currently serving his sixth year as superintendent of the Cahokia Unit School District, and he's in his 33rd year in education, all of them in the Cahokia District. And he began his career as a high school math instructor, moved on to administration. He's been a principal, a superintendent, and uh, during his 18 and a half years as a teacher, he also served as uh, both the executive vice president and then president of the Cahokia Federation of Teachers. Art Ryan. Thank you, good evening. Um, I, I would begin by echoing everything that Ms. Moore said, that the schools face the same problems as she said, unfunded mandates and, and very limited ability to generate your own money. Just to give you a quick overview, and I will, I will share with you the Cahokia experience, but I assure you that our experience is not unique to schools in general. But just since 2011-12 school year, our district has been shorted in state aid over $14 million. Um, during that time to address those needs, we have had to cut over 80 positions in that time. We currently have class sizes of 28 to 30 in every class K through 12. Um, and in addition, as was said, you know, with, as far as, you know, levying taxes and so on, the tax rate in my community right now, the, the school district alone, this is not the total tax rate, it's just the school's portion of the tax rate is $13.38 per $100 of evaluation. You know, which again, probably most people in this area, their tax rates are somewhere between, I bet, two and a half dollars to maybe four dollars. So we are probably close to four times the average rate. And again, unfortunately, because of the, the, the poverty and so on that's in my community, that $13 you would think would be a lot of money, it only generates about $9 million, which is roughly 10% of our budget annually. Uh, the remaining of our budget comes from state aid and then also federal money, Title I, and IDEA funds and so on. And we'll continue to hear from the panel this evening. And again, I uh, want to hear from all of you as well. So you have the cards. Feel free to give them uh, to Tracy and EJ, I believe, are the ones going to be uh, taking those. They're in the back. And uh, they'll be coming around, and we'll take those cards from you. We'd like for people to step up to the mics. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of names, and if we could get the people on each side to, uh, to sort of step up here. We have Carol. I don't have a last name. Uh, I wanted to know about uh, past due encumbrances. Carol someplace that could... She could step up, would that be okay? Hate to put you on the spot, Carol, first. But we also have Philip, uh, who had written about uh, Philip Zimmering, I believe is how it's pronounced, wanting to know why the state is so different from others. Like to hear from him as well. If uh, either of you want to step up, okay, feel free. And go ahead and ask your question. Okay, I don't remember exactly what I, is this working? Okay. So I'm wanting to know, basically, why in the world is this state of Illinois so different than every other state in the union by far when it comes to not being able to have a budget and to be so in debt? What is the root cause 
of this sort of culture of corruption that's been going on for decades. Does anybody on the panel want to tackle that one? Well, since I'm retiring this year, I'll address that. Um, <laughs> um, to, to be honest with you, I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, to be honest with you, that our state is really that much different than some of the other, well, but I mean, for example, when you, when you, you hear stories about California, you hear stories about a lot of different states that are equally in as bad a shape and as much debt. Um, I will say, you know, again, spending my whole life down here in this area, um, Chicago, I think is going to, I'm going to be very honest, Chicago is going to get their piece of everything that we do, everything that happens in the state. I mean, you know, we, you know, I'm sure all of you saw with this whole budget crisis and there's supposed to be a new funding formula for funding schools in Illinois. Well, a lot of that whole agreement was held up because the governor did not want to fund Chicago schools and of course Chicago wasn't not going to let that happen. And so it drug on and drug on and drug on over those, those kind of issues. But, you know, I, I, I think a lot of it, again, as, as was mentioned by Ms. Moore, it, it's a lot of special interests, a lot of, you know, we need to make sure we take care of this, that, and the other thing. The, 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 the pension crisis was mentioned, you know, earlier on. You know, a, a lot of the pension crisis is, is made because years and years ago, for the last 20, 30 years, when, when payments to the pension plan was due from the state, they chose to not pay the pension plan and do something else with the money. And so not only are they behind what was supposed to be paid, but they're also behind all that money, the interest that, that would have been earned during that time frame had they bothered to pay that. So, you know, again, there's, there's you know, and, you know, and I'm not naive, you know, politicians have to be reelected. You know, they, they have certain things that they're going to have to do and people that they answer to and they have to answer to, you know, they say they answered everybody, but they're going to answer to their base first, and th those are sort of the realities. And, and again, I think it's naive to think that that's not happening in every state. You know, I mean, that, that's just the way it goes. I appreciate your comments, but if you look at the facts, the states, even, even in the Midwest, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, they're all in so much better financial shape than we are. There has to be a reason why we are so different. Is there something in the water? <laughs> I, I just, I do not understand it. I mean, I'm not from Illinois originally, and I know that, that, that the, um, the civil service system is not strong here in terms of, in terms of getting state jobs and whatnot, but just the sh just the level of corruption is jaw dropping, and I I I just don't understand the reason for it. Um, we're not that much different than the other states, especially in this area. They have pension problems. They have budget problems, just like Illinois. But somehow they're able to at least get a budget. This state appears to be strangled well, or, from, or totally inept from the budget anything. From the budget standpoint, it's a partisan situation. I mean, let's just be honest. We have a Republican governor. We have a Democratic-led, you know, But these things Congress. are the same in other states. So these, these same things that you're saying are, are relevant in other states. And they just, they just seem to be able to manage the basic 
uh, um, needs of government so much better. Let, let me speak to one item, if I can. I'll speak to, I'll, I'll speak to one item that hurts us as a state, uh, and it drives business away to some extent, and it's uh, work comp. Workers' compensation is a no-fault system. So if I, if I get hurt at home, if I could just drag myself into work, I could get hurt at work and benefit from work comp because it's no fault. So that causes businesses to leave the state. There are some businesses that have located just over to Indiana in the Chicago area for that purpose. And arbitration is a problem as well associated particularly with the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. It's very difficult to negotiate uh, contracts because government is not necessarily the place for um, those entities because we, we don't have a way to generate money to respond to the demand. We can't say, we'll charge more for, for this widget or more for that. We raise taxes and that, that's not a good balance. So there are systemic uh, problems associated with how government functions that impacts us negatively. And two big ones are work comp and arbitration. And also, the, I mean, especially in the last few years with the budget situation, I mean, again, even nationally, when you, when you look at the partisanship and, and the almost hatred <laughs> that, that has been generated on both sides to, to where there is a complete lack of willingness to even discuss or attempt to come up with a solution. I mean, in, in, in days gone by, you know, people would talk with each other. They were willing to, to, to compromise, to make agreements. And, and now the, the, the political mood is, I have to win and someone else has to die. And it's, and it, and it's just, a, and, and so a, until, again, let's face it, until there's a stranglehold to where, okay, the schools aren't going to Open before you know, and all, and wait that long. I mean, in, in all honesty, I, I truly believe this: that the only reason that there was a an agreement and they reached an, a, an agreement on the budget this year was because they chose to not fund the schools, and no one politically wanted to deal with the doors not opening the first day of school. What happened last school year? They did not pass a budget, but they then did fund K through 12 education. So all the schools opened and everything was fine. There was a political decision made this year that they were not going to fund K-12 by itself. It was gonna be part of the overall budget. And either we're gonna get a budget for everything or the schools aren't gonna open and we'll see who pays the price for that. And that's, and that's why there was a budget that was solved this year because it came July 1, they weren't, schools were not going to get their first state aid check, and some schools literally would have had to close the doors and say, we cannot open school. Okay, so in other words, there has to be some kind of incredible crisis facing us that they can't ignore to get anything done. Okay, so, so how does that change? How does that, how does that ever change? This gentleman here mentioned, when I was making another comment, he mentioned Mike Madigan. Okay, now, as far as I can tell, Mike Madigan is a cancer on the politic. Um, how does that get rooted out? 
He's an elected official. Right. He's an elected official. Well, you know, and, and again, I mean, because I'm sure there's some people that would argue the, the, the other side of that thing. I'm, I'm not going to get into partisanship. But, uh, you know, in, until, again, until the citizens as a whole decide to start electing reasonable, rational people who are willing to compromise and who are willing to do that, because they're out there, but let's face it, it doesn't happen. The people in the middle don't get elected very often anymore. It's, it's, it's the, well, in any state. I mean, let's face it, look at, you can't look at the news anymore without seeing the Alabama thing. You know, and, and we're talking about an extreme situation that there are people that are still adamantly supportive of that because of this whole live or die, right or wrong, my side is right, your side is absolutely wrong mentality. You know, the, 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 the common sense, hey, let's just sit down and solve this problem attitude has been gone for quite a while and until it comes back, I don't know that a real solution is going to happen. And thanks, Philip. We're going to have to move along. We've got some other people want to talk. I would, I would agree with you on that, and I would also point out Michael Madigan, for those that don't know, the Illinois Speaker of the House. He's also chair of the state Democratic Party, so he controls a lot of purse strings. He's elected by a very small number of people, a district, a House district, not even a Senate district. But he is appointed or, or basically voted on by the elected members of the House to be the Speaker. That's where a lot of that power comes from. So. Um, you know, and again, he's just one cog in that entire machine of, of state government, but we can talk more about that as the evening goes along. We have another uh, question here. Uh, I, this is not it's quite a complicated question. Um, I thought maybe you could comment on what's the status of the reporting requirement of past due encumbrances in the state budget. I understand the Governor Rauner wanted to change from a monthly uh, to a monthly uh, reporting structure away from the current requirement which is annual i think for me as a as a resident it would be nice to know what's going on with our budget how far behind are we and how long I mean, the numbers that you quoted earlier was astonishing to me and i believe as the state controller who was the one that wanted to and some others who wanted to make that change the governor had vetoed that legislation said it might be more of a problem to try to do that and uh, maybe Deborah you might be somebody who could talk a little bit about that I, I knew I you know we found out about that when we read it in the paper as well it's my understanding that it is as it was you know the, it, it was a desire it didn't happen it, it's sort of in limbo and I honestly can't tell you that the state is is uh, complying with uh, regular monthly reporting. I've not seen those reports. I don't think it's happening, but I don't know. Mr. Ryan might be more um, aware. I, I can address. I know, I don't want to say this is roughly about six weeks ago, we received our final payments for the 15-16, excuse me, the 16-17 school year. Um, but we, and, and again, when I say payments, I, you know, we, we receive our state aid payments roughly about every two weeks, and, and those had been coming in. But I'm talking about payment, you know, the, the, what would they call the categoricals, which would be transportation, uh, special ed, uh, staffing, things like that. The categoricals, normally they are at least six months behind. And, and, and again, you know, the, 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 the truth of the situation is all of, all of what happens a lot in this stuff is semantics. You know, because if you go to your politicians, your local politicians, they will tell you, 
oh, we passed that, and they did. They passed the categoricals, and what happens is they send them to the comptroller. But the comptroller can't release them till the funds are in the bank to pay the checks. So they've been released, they, they're there, they're encumbered is the word that they use, they are encumbered, but until the money is made available, the checks aren't sent out. And so that's what drags on for six months. It's the same way when I mentioned the $14 million. What was happening is they were prorating the state aid payments. Instead of receiving 100% of the payments we were supposed to get, we were getting usually somewhere between 89 and 90%. So again, if, if you were to ask your local politician, why are you underfunding education? They would say, we're not underfunding education. We, you know, a, the state aid for each student is still $6,651 or whatever the amount is. And, and we, we left it at that. They approved that amount, but then when it gets to the bank, well, we don't have that much, we're gonna just give you 89% of it. But, but we can still argue that we're funding things the way, the way we can. And, and in fairness, like I said, I, I, you know, I have all the empathy of the world for our other two panelists, because again, schools, when, when you don't give the money to schools, that's gonna cause the most because the parents are gonna show up. But you know, I know the social services, when, you know, when, even like last year, when they funded us, they didn't fund them. I mean, and, and we had a, 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 a large number of social services that were available to our students that just had to close. They just had to shut the doors. It, it wasn't happening. And John, go ahead if you'd like to. Well, yeah, I did follow up with that. Um, I mean, he's right. Uh, basically, when they passed the uh, education spending bill, 99% uh, of the budget was still getting paid out, uh, but the way they were paying it uh, with the delays, uh, on average it was costing uh, the state $2 million a day. So for agencies like ours, uh, we're contract-based. Everything we have is a contract. They have averaged the last two years, um, 2016 we're owed $2.1 dollars and uh, they were on average 10 months in arrears. So uh, we actually got a bill this week for uh, billing for services that we did in 2014. The thing that most people don't realize uh, with the way the state has done business, it's not just for the last three years, but longer. It just has gotten really, really bad with the state budget crisis is, um, an agency, like any business, it's all about cash flow. And it's your ability to sustain uh, not getting paid. So what the state, in essence, has um, manipulated the situation because of this budget impasse. So if your business would operate by um, providing goods and services, essentially at your cost, and then when you don't get paid, you take a loan out, at a higher percentage rate than what you're getting paid back for from the state. And uh, you're so grateful when you get paid, you think that's normalcy. And it's not, it's insanity. <laughs> it's insanity, it's crazy. So uh, he's right, I mean, we were 1% of the budget not getting paid. We were part of a consent decree uh, that was funded uh, pro bono by the Shriver Center to uh, sue to get our Medicaid funded payments because the state was getting their match from the federal government. And even when uh, the Illinois Supreme Court said you have to pay them, they still didn't pay us on time. So there's really, I mean, the one thing about the, the budget impasse, there's really no rule book. I mean, things are done pretty much uh, 
when things got really tough and it didn't like there was going to look like there's going to be a budget, I mean payments stopped completely. And a lot of agencies like ours, um, you know, I obviously have to be very careful in a lot of ways of what I say, uh, but you have one office that basically controls the management of state agencies and you have other folks who are there to support your services because they know how much, not only the impact on the community, but they know that uh, in essence, long term, it's, it saves the state money. And there's a lot of manipulations that were done to agencies over the last three years um, that were really unnecessary. And it's really because when you start doing advocacy or you start talking out or you're working with at a certain point in time, you know, we're in the rotunda at the state because at that point, you have to watch what you say, but really what it comes down to, you're just not gonna be around. So what does it matter at that point what you say? So it's, you know, the reporting or whatever they say is, is just, it's really a manipulation. It really is not an accurate uh, figures, quite honestly. But the downside, if I can add to that, the downside Sorry, is... Before you start, I just want to mention to the other folks uh, who might want to step up and we can uh, get more questions. And Frank Roger, Bob Pashos, if you could step in. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Downside is if the state stops paying, and they've done that many times, you know, we reimburse 100%, you'll get to 80%, there's no more money, the text to stop. And they take no responsibility for that. The problem is you start to mound these these, you know, this debt, you, you, and you're, you're pulling money from your reserves or you're borrowing money. Borrowing is the worst, but they never give it back. Or it is presumed, well, you've paid it for six months. You can we just pay, and, and we'll drop ourselves to a 90%, and there's not a lot you can do. The key, what I know now, you know, and we didn't always pursue, but we are, we're very quick to pursue now, is you can't let it add up. I mean, you really have to fervently pursue receiving the revenues that you should. And, you know, we took legal action as well. We, we, we literally were sitting before a judge and before the, the, the case was being heard formally, uh, they released the dollars for our 911. You probably saw it on TV. Some of you saw they released the dollars for 911. And these were dollars that were generated because we decided to tax ourselves to support that service, but the money passed through the state, it was given back to us, and now they're about four months behind in the payments, but they are releasing payments on a regular basis. Keep in mind too, some of that money, 911's a good example, is collected by the state, so it comes back, you're paying it, but it comes back to the state, the state's withholding these, these payments to people, and that goes up and down the list of many types of bills. So it's, it's not as though, as you know, I think that's the biggest misnomer about this entire budget impasse, is people think, hey, they're not spending money, they don't have a budget, they didn't spend money. They actually spent more money. They spent like they had a tax increase in place when they didn't. The bills rose, you know, astronomically, and they're trying now to pay that off. So nobody really got a good deal from that. It wasn't as though the state tightened its belt during that time. Uh, let's continue on, and I know you have a question. Yes, I agree that uh, the budget impasse has been a tremendous part of the problem that the state is experiencing now. But I believe there's many, uh, including myself, perhaps some in this room even, who believe there may also be another elephant in the room here. 
in terms of what has caused this problem. And I'm referring to the, the fact that Illinois has what many believe is a far too flat tax structure. Uh, Governor candidate Daniel Billis, excuse me, Biss has, I think, done a tremendous job of uh, emphasizing this in his campaign and championing it. And I would, um, I would hope that uh, some of the panel members might have something to speak to this. Well, and again, let me first preface that I am absolutely no expert at all in, in the taxes or the tax base or so on, but I know in, in all these discussions and so on, I've talked to several other superintendents, other people that have done research, and, and what they share with me is that in Illinois that, you know, people always say either the property tax is too high or this is too high, but when you put all the taxes that people pay together, you know, in a lump, that we're really not that much different than most of the other states. You know, I mean, they'll say, well, my property tax is too high, but I'm only paying, you know, 3% or now 5% in income tax, where someone else, I don't have property tax at all, but maybe my income tax is 7% or whatever the case may be. But, you know, I, I agree with you that, you know, they need to come up with a better method and, and, and do research of, okay, what's the, what's the best way to generate the funds that they need, but also in the most fair system. You know, again, one of the complaints that we get as a school district about property taxes is that we have a large number of, of families that rent. And so their argument is, well, they're not paying taxes. Well, but, you know, to some degree, of course they are, because they're going to raise their rent when the property taxes go up and so on. But, you know, the, 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 no one wants, no one, again, it, it kind of comes back to the beginning of the session. No one wants to be the guy to stand up and do the job. No one wants to say, here's the problem, and the only way we can address this is to fix the taxes, or do this, or cut this program, or do that, you know, because again, they all have constituents and they're afraid they're not gonna get reelected. That's, that's just the reality of politics. Just to follow up, again, a big part of the, that concern has to do with the fact that many believe that Basically, the, the poor and the middle class are, are paying too much proportionally, mm -hmm. and the wealthy are getting off far, far too easy mm -hmm. because of that tax structure. Look at the tax thing that was passed today. A lot of, a lot of cuts for corporations. Is, and again, I, I can only trust what I read in the paper. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I sat and researched it all, but everything I see is that it's all you know, cuts for corporations' business. You know, what, one of my biggest issues, you know, TIF districts. You know, Every municipality creates a TIF district to attract business, which is great, and I understand that, but, you know, they do it once, then they give them another one, and next thing you know, it's been 45 years, and the school districts and the, and the county and so on, you know, they're, they're not receiving the money for these businesses, and, you know, as a matter of fact, well, I want to remember the number correctly. I believe that, if I remember correctly, if, if we had no TIFs in Cahokia, we would generate $4 million a year more in our property tax than we, than we do now. You know? And again, and what happens when it's time for the TIF to go? We close up and leave. Yeah. <laughs> because, okay, now the, now the, the property is, does, is not worth anything. Thank you. And the uh, TIF districts, for those that might go back a few years, remember they were created, I think, with a 23-year window, something like that. And what's that window up to now? Well, you can, I you think can it's still 23, it. but you can, you can re-up it again. So you're almost half a century that you can provide a tax incentive for an area. So, yes, that's certainly an issue. I think Springfield, for example, where I'm at, 
has, I believe, I, th I think it's either eight or nine. They're looking to create another one. So we're so much of the town, or at least where a lot of the growth is, it has some type of TIF district. Uh, you have a question. I have a question about pension liability. Uh, I heard a figure of the pension liability for the state of Illinois is like $250 billion. And I wonder, uh, since the state or the school districts or the county cannot go bankrupt and cannot deliver their, uh, well, legally, they cannot go There's bankrupt. no mechanism for them to go bankrupt. But trust me, we can go bankrupt. But <laughs> why, why do they have to pay into a pension liability? Why can't they fund the pensions from current revenue? Well, I mean, and again, as I mentioned, I think when I first started, part, part of the issue really is that the system was set up with the employee paying part of the money, the district paying part of the money, and the state paying part of the money. And, and the issue has is been that the employee is paying their portion and the district's paying their portion, but the state hasn't been paying theirs. So, you know, again, a, a lot of that pension debt is because of money that wasn't funded, and we're talking over a 30 year period. I mean, a long time ago. And again, just, just imagine taking a two or three or four million, 10 million, 20 million dollar payment 30 years ago and investing it in something, and how much would that be worth now that just didn't happen? Um, now, yeah, and, and again, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably cutting my own throat here. I'm realist enough to, 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 you know, I've looked at what my pension's going to be and, you know, to knock on wood, I live another 20 years and how much potential, you know, money I'm going to get in pensions. So I realize that probably there does absolutely have to be some pension reform in that system. But, but the thing is, you have to, you have to decide to do that and like, you know, like start now. You know, start with the people that are, that are being hired in now so they know the game. But as I said, I'm, I'm actually retiring at the end of this school year. Don't come in now and say, hey, guess what? We're going to do this and this and this because I lived by the rules for my 33 years. I did everything that you asked me to do. I should get what I have coming to me the same way you shouldn't go to, you know, the, there's actually a couple of my former teachers and friends of mine that I noticed in the audience that have been retired for a number of years. We shouldn't go back now and try and take their pension away from them because all of a sudden we don't have money. But same thing, someone's got to have enough guts to stand up and say, you know, 50 years ago or whatever, when people didn't live as long as they live and things were like, you know, this system worked. It needs to be revisited. But you need to, again, you need to come up with a compromise that everybody can live with, not just come in and say we're going to take it away from them. And we have uh, seen some passage of legislation that does for new for new employees they they do get a lower amount they they do but i'm going to be perfectly honest with you i fully anticipate that the first person that hits that tier two level is going to sue and i would be shocked if they don't win you know because it, again it's in the constitution of what they're supposed to get i i don't argue that it needs to be addressed but it it, it can't be done without bringing everybody to the table and i'm not sure that everybody is being brought to the table in these discussions well, I was wondering why why you can't just pay pensions from current revenue rather than having to bank it or invest it or whatever, earn interest. Well, I, I think realistically, I mean, the way the system was set up, you know, again, you know, the, the money I've been paying in for, for the last 
33 years is what's paying you know my my two teachers right now and then you know when I retire the money from all the people that are working now is going to be what's paying mine and you know I mean you know, people, people retired after, you know, whenever it started, after a certain number of years, well, they didn't put in enough money to get back what they were actually getting. It's, it, you know, it, you know it, it's a tier system. It's a building system. It's just like everything else to where, you know, you're going to take some money and invest it to come up with that extra money that they're going to pay them over the span of their, of their, of their lives. But, you know, it, if it had been done the way it was supposed to be done, this would not be nearly as big an issue as it is now. You know, Given benefits are lifetime benefits, uh, you know, at the local level, you just couldn't afford to to manage out of current revenues, or you know, or it would be necessary to create a fund that you were truly funding, that was earning a reasonable rate, to be able to to respond to the demand when it hits. Uh, there are multiple systems within the state of Illinois as well. The Illinois Municipal Retirement Fund, IMRF, is a separate fund, has nothing to do with the state at all, and many in county government, our county government, is a part of that system. So what you find people doing often is double dipping. You'll go to the state and work out, then you flip over to this pension, you work the number of years required, and then you have multiple pensions. But IMRF is a separate pension. And as a county, we could not begin to fund that pension out of current revenues because of the sheer cost and the fact that it's a long-term benefit and the value increases annually. And IMRF is in pretty good shape, it, certainly in comparison solvent, to the state. Absolutely solvent, and that's why the state often wants to absorb it, and there's been a, right. a lot of fighting <laughs> against that, and I mean, everyone who's in it knows that. I mean, that's it, It's adequately funded because the state is not involved because in the IMRF. Involved. <laughs> right. um, and again, we do have the cards. If uh, any of you have a question or comment, uh, just like you to fill one of those out, we'll call you up to, uh, to answer that. I did want to go to John here because something came up earlier uh, we were talking about schools being this, uh, you know, the, the straw that broke the back, I guess, when it came to the budget impasse, what ended the budget impasse, the threat of schools not opening. And certainly you're sitting there with, you know, s social services feeling that crunch, in fact, not being funded, some of them closed, some of these services not being offered anymore, people being laid off. That just didn't resonate, I guess, to the same extent. Why is that, you think? Well, you know, I think he's right. I mean, you have a lot of folks, obviously, with families that uh, would have been a lot of crisis if they weren't going to bring their uh, kids to school every day. But uh, there were uh, four senior centers that closed in a six-county area, and I don't even know that outside of the uh, press releases we did, it made a blip. Um, it's... It, Everything is really kind of connected in a way. Uh, when we're talking about uh, kids not getting services, everything also costs something. Uh, when somebody doesn't get mental health services, we're all probably painfully aware of uh, what's going on in our country. The first thing that comes out when you have any kind of these mass shootings is why wasn't a person getting mental health? Uh, you also have uh, a cost. Uh, right now, our entire country in this area is definitely in a heroin crisis, there are a lot of things that are really attacking our community. And when the budget impasse comes along and you start cutting uh, after school programs, 
um, you start cutting out uh, safety nets for things, it costs us money down the road. So, you know, our biggest thing was uh, Meals on Wheels. Um, we served 650 Meals on Wheels in April of 2015, and we dropped down within a year to 450. And when we were at 650, we were doing five hot deliveries a day. Uh, it cost the state, our reimbursement rate for that program is $4.75 per meal. The average cost for a Medicaid nursing home is $151 a day. So it's one of the most cost effective programs that you can fund. It cost the state $3.09 and it cost the uh, federal government $1.66. They spend uh, $18 million to serve 8 million uh, Meals on Wheels a year. So, you know, every day we were out seeing 650 folks, seniors that lived in their homes, performing a safety check, making sure that they're okay. That went away. We were cut 17,000 meals and we were only able to provide five frozen meals. So we went once a week. And it's just what it comes down to is people are just not getting the support that they need to stay in their home. So what happens? Uh, when I first started 11 years ago, one out of every uh, nine seniors went hungry every day. Now it's one out of every six. What happens when somebody goes hungry? Eventually they're gonna end up in the hospital. That costs big bucks for emergency room. So this, everything is connected the state budget, uh, the impasse cutting back services uh, during the time when agencies close and they're not around. You know, look, one of the, the answer to your question originally, what I always think about a lot of what causes our problems, Illinois is one of the fifth uh, most populated states and we have a lot of folks living here. And there's a lot of talk about people moving out of the state, but a lot of people of need are not going anywhere. These are the people who continue that need our services for many years to come. Everything's connected, it costs us money. When those cuts happen, the agencies that went away, they're not gonna be coming back. And like I said earlier, I know for us, um, one of the things that I think about most, and one, thing, one of the things that worries about me with what affects the school districts, in 20 years, there are going to be more people over the age of 60 than there will be kids under the age of 12, and there's not going to be enough young people to take care of old people. So you need an educated workforce, you need a collaboration with the school districts, and you need to train people to be there. And instead of those partnerships, collaborations, and everything coming together now, these massive cuts happen, and it is a disruption in services that don't go away. I mean, we'll be feeling the effect of this for many, many years, and it will cost us money down the road. We want to uh, continue on with some questions. Uh, we have a card from Sue Pate, I believe, if Sue can make her way up. And while she's doing that, I, I would just add, I think one thing we're, we're hearing, and I've heard these throughout um, all of these events that we've been holding throughout the state, is you know I, when it comes to taxes, I feel I pay enough in taxes. I, right now, I, I don't really want to pay more in taxes. I don't think most people do. But what I look at is I, I see things like John was talking about and, and all of the panel talking about is we're talking about investments. You can invest now or you can pay later. You're not going to get off the hook. You're going to pay when that senior citizen has to go to the hospital because you did not provide the services much cheaper 
to keep them in their home and keep them more healthy. And same for schools, same for government, all of this. So it's just something to keep in mind as we go forward. Sue? I think this is a very well-educated audience, and I think we're all probably aware of most of the problems that face our state government. And I'm here to ask, what in the world can we as a citizen do today, right now, to, to help all of these problems? And there are so many, it just seems overwhelming, but we have to do something, and I'd like to know what it is. I think advocacy is extremely important. I mean, you can align with John. Uh, he does a lot of advocacy, I know, because everything is tied together. One problem is tied to the next. They're all inextricably tied. I mean, some would say the problem is singularly the social service delivery system, because there is a presumption, say, at the federal level that um, supporting what is called entitlements harkens us back to the days of the Great Society and that thing. But no, that's, that's not really, it's, it's bigger than that. Then there's the side of, well, it's the schools. Well, that's a problem too, you know, we have to work it out. And it's, it's training. But a, a problem, as, as I see it, it's almost cyclical. We must have good school systems to produce quality students who are able to pursue training or higher education and pursue jobs that are uh, productive and pay a living wage. And help support me as an old person. Hey, absolutely. Me, you, I'm, the, I'm the two wondering, of us. can't we do that at the county level and just forget about looking for But we do that. We, we try it, and I'll tell you the way, the way it works. We have what's called a workforce investment, oh, I'm sorry, the name has changed. Workforce Investment Opportunities Act. I probably got it wrong. WIOA. Uh, it was a, it's a, you know, there were several iterations before. But what we want to do is train young people for employment opportunities so that they can be productive citizens. But a problem we face is many of our urban districts, and I don't think Mr. Ryan would take issue if I say Cahokia is one of those districts, East St. Louis is one of those districts, City of St. Louis is, is the same. Mayor Sammy, you know that. They're not producing students who are competent necessarily at grade levels. And the reports all reflect that. So we can't immediately put them into higher education environments that can be paid for at the community college level and move them to employment opportunities. A huge problem on the employment side is we are not as aggressive and effective in the area of economic development to produce businesses or industry that will result in employment opportunities. So you still have this group of young people who are not equipped to do very much and they become burdens to some level on your community because you gotta keep pumping social services while trying to build them up to make them more productive. On the other hand, you have seniors who have valid needs that are not being addressed because there is a presumption that Medicaid, we need to cut back on Medicaid. You don't solve the problem that way. But the key, in my opinion, to some level is working together as a collective. And we have something that we're working on with uh, the United Way that I'm very proud of in St. Clair County, and it extends both on both sides of the river. It's a collective impact effort 
with uh, the United Way and St. Clair County, and we're working with school districts, we're working with your district, we're working with 189, we're working with many groups to try to address the problem as a collective to enhance and improve the ability of those who are out delivering the services to be able to deliver them better by working together and depending on each other and the resources we have. So what can you do right now is become engaged, become a part of, of an advocacy group that is comprehensive rather than singularly focused so that you can address multiple problems at one time. And just to follow up, because you just m made the comment about, you know, kind of staying at the county level. Actually, I believe the best thing you do is to contact your local, get a group of people and contact your local legislators and contact them every day. Let them know that you are here. The annoyance. And, exactly. Because the, 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 the bottom line is, again, let, let's just be honest, politicians' number one job is to stay elected. And if they, they cannot stay elected, if they've made their constituents angry, and and they need to know that, you know that they will, but but they will, they will stand up to the powers that be. Again, you know, you know, Speaker Madigan was mentioned. You know, I've actually seen people literally have to stand up to him because you know what, I will lose my spot if I vote for this or if I vote for that, and what and, and the game that's played is we figure out, okay, well, I can get these 67 or whatever number I need, and okay, you can go ahead and vote no because I've got what I need. But if throughout the state, everybody is calling their person and saying, I won't tolerate this, you don't have the 67 anymore, and we have to compromise on something. We could pull um, our representatives from the jury pool instead of electing them and send them for <laughs> see if they can take care of the problem. Uh, yeah, I guess that's one solution. I'm not sure. And you bring up a point that I hear a lot, and that's term limits and, and things of that nature, which, you know, t to some degree, term limits sound like a great idea. Okay, you know what? You can have eight years or whatever, and then that's it. You've got to move on. But, you know, being, again, being one of the most senior people in my school district and we're at the stage where we've had a lot of retirements and we're getting a lot of, a lot of new people in, there's something to be said for that, for that person who's been around and understands oh, you know, yes. what the process is. You know, so you know, even though it sounds good, I'm sort of a little fearful of, you know what, there can't be anybody here that's been here more than eight years. Because you know, at some point, you, you just sort of start reinventing the wheel. You know, because nobody's here that remembers how it happened the last time. So th there's goods and bads of those issues as well. So we have to do something, and we have to do something drastic, and that's. I I agree. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, we do have a couple of other cards here. I want to uh, call up uh, Bob Engelbretson and also Kevin Hall. If you could make your way up, that'd be great. And we won't even get into the redistricting issue, which I think we were getting ready to <laughs> launch into there, a whole nother ball of wax. But anyway, go ahead. Um, Kevin Hall, so um, short of changing the state constitution, how do we fix the unbalanced budget going forward? Because we're losing population every year. Um, we can't tax our way out. We can't cut our way out. So how do each of you kind of see how do we fix this? Because I'm looking 60, 70 years down the road for being impacted by the budget. You know, I think if I had that answer, I would be the new governor. But, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, again, I think we were just discussing, 
I think it's going to take the population of the state contacting their local legislators and demanding that they create an environment of cooperation and working together and solving problems and that we are no longer going to stand for you guys not doing things, for, for things to not be done. You know, again, they have to feel, you know, the, the, the politicians are the people that do this. They, you know, I, I, I get on this soapbox a lot, but, you know, everything that happens in education is generated by politicians who don't really come to us and say, hey, what do you think very often? You know, if we hear about it, we can call them. But, you know, so often I hear politicians say, well, you know, I didn't really have a chance to read that bill. You know, somebody told me it was a good thing, or well, you like this, or you like that, or whatever, or whatever the situation is. And, you know, w almost everything, I'm sure the, the, the others on the panel would say the same thing. I'm being given directives, and I'm given, being, you know, told how I'm supposed to do things and what I'm supposed to do based on the decisions of people who know nothing about what I do or how the process works. You know, uh, you know going back to what was mentioned earlier in the students, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I have no problem with accountability, but with all, you know, with the No Child Left Behind Act and everything else, it all became about t state test scores, and it became about that one big test. And what's happened in almost all the high schools in, in, throughout the state is things got lost. We, we no longer have vocational programs. We don't have welding and, and, you know, and auto body and things of that nature because something had to lose because number one, we're not getting as much money, and number two, we need to double the amount of time we're doing math. We need to double the amount of time we're doing language arts and so on, and things had to lose. So, you know, I'm constantly being visited by, by you know, the, 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 the labor groups and so on saying, if we can figure out a way that you guys can send us somebody with just some skills, we will find them work. But, but again, I, I don't have the funds to bring those in. I, I, we've actually partnered with, uh, with SWIC to, to do a program where we're sending kids in the afternoon, you know, juniors and seniors in the afternoon to do welding and so on. So after a two, this two-year program, they'll walk out with four certificates and we'll be able to actually get jobs. Those used to be done in the high school. You know, when I was in high school, we had electrical, welding, construction, all that stuff. Most of you, go, go and look at your, most of your high schools. Those things don't exist anymore, you know? And again, it's all because things were mandated, and in fairness, in good intentions. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't believe that people said, oh, let's just mess with this stuff. But it was all decided by people that didn't understand the cause and effect of what you were forcing us to do and what was going to be the results when it was all done. And, the, and, and Mr. Ryan uh, has referred to it on several occasions, but the electorate is very powerful. If, if you would see yourself as powerful, you're very powerful. But the electorate is often deeply discounted because you don't act powerful. When the voting rates are you know, 25%, 30%, 35%, you know, it, you, you, you can be dis deeply discounted and you will be deeply discounted because a politician knows it doesn't matter, they'll, they'll go, I'll focus here. And, and your issues are not heard necessarily and addressed because the sincere preference of a politician is to be elected, is to be reelected. But it's the power of, of the elect, the power of those who vote. And if you can bring those bodies, those individuals together and strengthen that area of response, you will get a response like you, you, you know, you, 
couldn't imagine. Uh, well, I'm not even close to qualified to give you any kind of opinion on how to solve the uh, issue, but all I will say is this. I mean, you know, I run a, uh, lucky enough to lead a $9 million agency, and we do extremely well operating very efficiently, but it's just a simple fact of life. If everybody in here spent more money you take in, you'd be bankrupt. I mean, that's just reality, and that's what we've been doing for years and years and years. And until that problem in itself gets solved, I don't really see a whole lot changing. So, uh, you know, the political climate is not good on a federal level, uh, nor is it uh, on a state level. And the ideologies, it seems like, across this country are really uh, at a crossroads. And unfortunately, those ideologies are now affecting all of us. And uh, I mean, there was uh, there's a lot of times in the last three to five years where if they wouldn't let the original income tax lapse, we wouldn't have been in the situation we are today. It cost an incredible amount of money for us to borrow money during this impasse. And that really hurt us, and that added to this deficit. But if uh, people don't come together in some way, shape, or form, because the problem is, depending on who becomes the next governor, uh, their policies, if they continue to be, and it's not a, a party issue here, because you look at back at the history of Illinois, you got as many Democratic as uh, Republican governors sitting in prison right now. <laughs> and, I mean, they started tons of programs we could never afford. So until the ideology is we're going to have a balanced budget, I mean, we're just going to be in trouble. And we have a lot of people that live here, and we have a lot of need. And uh, I don't know how that's going to change, honestly. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, before we move on here, Ruth Henderson, if you could step up to make your way to that mic, that'd be great. And I guess what I'm getting from that is you probably will be paying more in the future and receiving less is probably the only way to dig the state out of that. Go ahead. That was fundamentally my question. Uh, the budget that was just passed, is it sufficient to start digging it out of the hole? In other words, have we turned the corner so that we're going to be paying down our debt, or are we still adding to our debt? Now, that, we've been talking a lot in the past here. We haven't been talking much in the future. And one thing about this group People here are enough concerned to be here. So we got some ideas too. What, what are our ideas that we could start acting on? Like uh, let's have a, the draft again so we break up this regionalism. So we teach people how to do the welding that we're not doing in school so that we can either go in the military or go into a civil conservation corps start rebuilding some of these forests that are burning down. There's things that we could do to employ people who don't have the education and ways to teach them. You know, how do we do some of these things? You know, we got so much negativity. Social Security is going to go away. Well, it's not going to go away. Even if they don't do anything, you're going to get 75% because there's enough funds in there to fund it for 75% of what you're supposed to get. It wouldn't take a whole lot to change it. Take the cap off. You know, what are the ideas? Uh, let's start as a group, start telling the congressmen some ideas. You know, uh, voting. 
we, we got to vote. You got to get your neighbor out there to vote. I, I mean, it's insane that we have a president who says, I got elected by this huge majority when it's just ridiculous. The local level, we're getting, what, 12, 18% turnout? I mean, it's insane. Uh, that's my... Appreciate it. And anybody want to anybody want to respond? There's another one. This, by the way, is one of my Cokie uh, alumni retirees. Bob, it's good seeing you. Um, first to answer your, your initial question, you know, do I think that they have enough funds to fund the budget? No, because as was mentioned at the very beginning, the first thing they did was go out and borrow, you know, however billions yeah, of they dollars. They borrowed to pay down higher interest rate, didn't they? They, they borrowed at a lower interest rate so they could pay down something that's 12% with something that's 3%. And, that, and that's true, but I mean, the, but again, the, the, I guess the point I mean, is they're, they're, it's still, they still continue to, to be in debt. I mean, and yeah, but you've got to do what you can do. Sure, sure. I, you know, I, I agree. But I mean, like, for example, the, the, the new funding formula that they've got for education, you know, we've already been told they can't fund that at the full level. I mean, you know, there, there was a level that was determined with the funding formula. They said, if you want to do this at a full level, here's the amount. And they've already told us we can't possibly fund it at the, at the full amount. So again, we've, we've created a new plan to try and address the problems in education, but we're telling you right from the very beginning, we're not going to fully fund it. Okay, well, I'm sure that plan's going to work just great. You know, I mean, because again, a perfect example. One, one, when that when they first started floating this plan, they sent out some early projections. And granted, they haven't done it yet, and we'll see where it goes. But one of the early projections that they showed was that my district uh, would receive roughly about a half million dollars more money. Which, I, for all the issues we have, I can't believe that's all we're getting. But even if it was, they said we're going to receive a half a million dollars of new money from this plan. But just here three, four months ago, they also sent an email out and said that the corporate personal property replacement tax was going to be cut by 25% across the district, which just happens to be in my district, a half a million dollars. So guess what? I got a half a million dollars new money from the funding formula potentially, and I'm losing a half a million dollars from the corporate personal property tax. So if I'm real, real lucky, I'm starting dead even. But again, they're going to turn around and say, but you guys got that new funding formula. Where's, where's all the new changes? Where's all the things that happened? And I'm going to have to try and explain to people why that really didn't go anywhere. And can you explain just briefly that corporate uh, personal property replacement tax, what that is, how that's collected? And all? Well, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not as well versed in it, but ultimately, you know, my understanding of it was, you know, way back for, for very senior citizens. There used to be a, you know, a personal property tax that was collected on the items that you owned. If you bought a car, you bought a toaster, you bought a TV, whatever, you paid a, a tax on that. And at some point they eliminated all that and they just came up with this. And it and it's mainly goes around with, with um, um, my understanding is from the uh, uh, like industry and so on that, that, that's in, in the area. And really what happened, and uh, again, purely just speculation on my part, but Two years ago, someone messed something up and they overpaid the, curb, the you know, property tax. And they figured that out and said, oh, by the way, you were overpaid. We're going to have to figure out a way to take, to, to take that back. And they were supposed to develop a formula and never did. Well, it just so happens that this cut that they're doing this year happens to be the exact same amount that they said they overpaid back then. So 
I'm hopeful that this 25% cut is going to be a one-year, okay, we got our money back situation, but I don't know if that's true. But you know, again, just because I look at some of the districts in our area, I'm losing a half million dollars. I, I live in Granite City, my wife teaches in that school district, they're losing $2 million in corporate personal property tax. And, and as I looked at it, almost across the board, the projections of what was coming from the new state funding almost mirrored exactly <laughs> with what you were losing in the property tax. So again, it, it all sounds good in the paper, but when you throw it all together in the bank account, we're all dead even again. Before we run out of time here, I do want to, uh, Ruth, you had a question? I want to echo what okay. was saying. I think you know, often some good things. And uh, for me personally, you I to the mic. I'm just talking to the mic. I'm sorry. Thanks. I personally uh, want the services that we're providing. I don't want to live in a society where everyone is out for themselves. So I'm willing to pay more taxes. But because I make more money, and I'm willing to pay the taxes, I totally support a graduated income tax so that I can pay more taxes without har harming my neighbor. And I think we need the revenue. And I think instead of asking people to do more with less, we need to step up to the plate and say, I'll pay more, but don't, make, don't take it from the dishwashers. Um, and that's what I'm going to be doing is talking to my legislators and saying, I'll pay it, and what can I do to help you? Would, would the question, or the question I have, <clears throat> I make a certain amount of money because I retired after 26 years in the military, and then I retired after teaching for a bunch of years. If my income goes over 100000 tax me. You know, there's a lot. When I do state taxes, teachers, Pensions don't get uh, taxed. Social Security doesn't get taxed. Uh, military doesn't get taxed. But after a certain amount, you should be taxed. The graduated. Yeah. They don't have. They don't have to change the constitution to do that. I don't think. I don't know. They might have to with the pen. Uh, the, the, I'm not sure if the pension thing is in the constitution or not about this about pensions in Illinois not being taxed. That might be in there, but I'm. I not understand positive. they got to fund it. And I understand why, because the teachers made an agreement that they wouldn't take Social Security, they would take their retirement. And the state didn't have to pay Social Security, and then the state welched on it. And now the teachers, if they don't get a pension, they're in big trouble. Big trouble. And uh, I appreciate that, Ruth. Uh, I just echo a lot of what he said. Okay. And uh, we're going to be uh, wrapping up here pretty quick, so we're going to try to get another person up. Uh, Colin Van Meter, if he can step up. And I would just... Um, be interested in getting it a show of hands or if you can uh, applaud one way or the other but uh, it seems to me a lot of people I talk to say yeah I'd pay more in taxes I don't trust that they'll use the money that I'm giving them wisely so I don't know if you feel the same way everybody feel like that too that you, you'd give a little more but you're not sure it's going to help in the end Carl, go ahead Current liabilities are out there. Mm -hmm. Tax and spend. That's the problem. Go ahead. Sure. So it's it's been uh, set up here a couple times that you know you can't spend what you don't take in. And we seem to seem to be able to do that year to year, year after year. <laughs> um, but that also implies that we would have to cut things. So what should get cut? Um, who doesn't deserve services and who does? I mean, where, where do those questions come in? I mean, that always becomes a difficult thing to ask. Is that, d does this person not deserve something? 
and this person does. I mean, you talk about funding for your, uh, your district, um, but if they decide hey, that needs to be cut, I mean, where do you go from there? Well, again, I mean, and, and I, I, may, I may be dating myself here, but for those of you out there that remember the term, the bridge to nowhere, you know, I mean, you, you, we're being naive if we don't think that our state and our federal governments create projects that aren't necessary, that cost millions and billions of dollars because it's going to be done in my district where I can take credit for it and get myself reelected again. So. Right off the bat, if you prioritize what needs to be done and what doesn't really need to be done, I think you're going to do some of that. But, you know, as far as, as what gets cut and what doesn't get cut, you know, as I said, you know, and I, I will be very upfront with this, at the time that all these prorations were going on, my district, because of our financial situation, was in, was in state oversight. We weren't taken over. But they were watching this and they wanted to know our budget. And we weren't able to borrow money. You know, almost all the other districts in this, in the metro area and probably in the state, as all these prorations were coming, they, they didn't cut services to the kids. They went out and they borrowed more money, which is why so many districts now have kind of, they've kind of caught where I was five, six years ago. They have, with the school district, you can only borrow up to a percentage of how much money you bring in. And so the, a lot of them have hit their max as well. But you know, with, with us, we couldn't borrow money when any of this was happening. So like I said, I had to go out and I had to cut people. I had to cut services. My feet were held to the fire. I, I couldn't just generate and write a check that we didn't, we didn't have, which is, again, the end result is I've got 28 to 30 kids in every class. Now, I'm, I'm talking in a community that is high poverty, high mobility, a lot of single parent homes, a lot of, a lot of social issues, and we're trying to educate kids so that they could potentially get college bound with 30 kids in a class. It's virtually an impossible task. And, you know, I, again, when, you, when we talk about state funding, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean here, but there, there are districts without, throughout the state of Illinois that have three and four and five years worth of funds already in the bank, but they're still receiving state aid because someone's going to yell and scream if they take their state aid away. We're back to the same thing. Politicians at some point have to make the tough decisions, and they have to look and say, you know what? These guys could get by with a little bit less because they've taken care of themselves. You know, they, they have a 1% tax rate and they generate millions, maybe even billions of dollars because of the, the, the values of the people in their community. Me, I got a $13 tax rate and I generate $9 million because most of the homes in my community are probably, if we're lucky, twenty-five dollars to $30,000 homes. You've got to look at what you've got. You've got to look at everything and be fair about how you do it. You know, there's a difference between fair and even. You know, not everybody gets the same thing. You have to look at it and say, this guy may need a piece that big, and this guy may need a piece this big. And that's fair, but it's not necessarily gonna be even. I would also add say, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. May I add to that? Uh, Mr. Ryan talked earlier, TIFs should expire simple. I mean, and revenue comes back when they expire. Uh, tickets, 
the infinite wisdom of the legislator, the thinking was, we will not keep a license when a person gets a ticket. We'll let them keep their license. The greatest incentive to pay your ticket is to get your license back. I have driven on yellow pieces of paper, and I know they work. And I was most encouraged to be there early in the morning to get my ticket. So, you know, it's, it's little things like that. And it, it, to me, it's little things, I don't know, but it, it's apparently a bigger thing. But a huge thing now, now, and please, I, I, I'm not against veterans, I love veterans, there should have been a limit on the current veterans exemption. In the state of Illinois, if a veteran is 70% disabled or greater, they pay no real estate taxes, absolutely none. So I could be a retired general making maybe a $100,000 uh, retirement, living in a $500,000 home that has a tax value of maybe $10,000, $12,000 a year, I pay no taxes. There should have been a limit on up to this income, I mean, as, as was said earlier, or some type of limitation, because that hurts school districts. That hurts, that hurts school districts, park districts, libraries. I mean, any tax-paying entity or tax-receiving entity is impacted by the reduction of what's called the EAB, the Equalized Assessed Value. So if you bring that down, you bring down revenue that school districts, districts can earn, and you, you just minimize their ability to educate children. You minimize ability to provide uh, assistance to social service agencies. As a governmental body, we provide assistance to uh, our senior uh, facility, relationship through the, our community college. But our dollars are shrinking because we just don't have the ability. We provide services, uh, money revenue to uh, other nonprofit organizations. But the key is to, to don't take revenue away from, from the local government. Allow them to maintain their revenue. And TIF is huge, and now this new veterans exemption is very huge in terms of reducing revenue that we could all benefit from. So essentially for us, uh, we, uh, as a freestanding non-for-profit, all, all of our, uh, we don't get like way back when a chunk of money, here's a grant, spend it how you will. Everything we do is performance-based contracts. So our homemaker services, we're in the homes of 800 people a day. Uh, we help uh, folks essentially perform activities of daily living because of their diminished capacity. Um, on average, that costs $21 a day versus a Medicaid nursing home for $151 a day. Uh, our competitors are two large multi-state uh, for-profit uh, companies. They don't have the same focus on mission-driven uh, programming that we do, and I like to think uh, that we perform a higher level of care because we add in more things uh, for not just of our employees, but the services we provide. So to go back to your question about what to cut, um, you know, the bottom line is we want a well-educated workforce, we want job opportunities, we want clean water, we want roads, and we want people taken care of. Our agency, like a lot of the folks up here, does it in a very cost-effective manner. I mean, what, what really bothers me about the last couple of years um, if we were a for-profit company, we would have just raise our rates. We haven't got a rate increase for 
seven years. So operating as a business, uh, when you engage in Meals on Wheels and you're only paid half the cost of a meal, you have to raise the other half and you don't get a rate increase and then you don't get paid for nine months. I mean, it's just not, no for-profit would enter into that form of business. They wouldn't do it. But it saves an incredible amount of money. So, I don't appreciate know. that. I would actually add one other thing uh, that people have talked about tonight when it comes to, uh, you know, how do you make a difference? I do believe in journalism. I do believe in reporters being on the scene, looking at what's going on. I think that's some of the reason you have uh, some of the people have gone to prison, for example, is because of some of the reporting that was done and find out this wrongdoing. The state government, the state house press corps, I should say, in Illinois. When I first started, there was over 20 some odd reporters and bureaus there. Alton had a bureau, I, don't know, I think Belleville was there quite a bit, so a lot from this area, St. Louis. It's down to about five or so now. So there's nobody watching the hen house at this point, you know, and that, that's a big problem. And that's just something to think about. Uh, it's not just Illinois, that's happening across the country. Um, and the other thing I would just add with this is, there is something called budgeting for results that has popped up more in the last few years. I think it's a good idea. It's basically going through programs, making sure these programs function as they're supposed to, and are they a good use of taxpayer money. Um, they may not do that enough in some respects, in answer to your question of what they should be doing, what they should fund, but that to me would be a good start, is going through the budget that way. I think the alarm's telling us we're about ready to go. So um, I do want to thank everybody for coming out tonight. We are out of time, and let's give a hand to our panel. Also, I want to thank St. Louis Public Radio for helping organize the event with us, and also AARP, and again, thanks for coming out and drive safe.